Welcome everyone to episode 15 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. Snake bites may not strike you as being a major public health problem, but in some parts of the world they are a daily risk and can be lethal or life-changing. Victims often do not get the treatment they need in time, if at all. In other cases, they are given medicine to treat an injury caused by a different snake. From the BBC.com, why are so many people still dying from snake bites? This is by Dr. Nick Casewell and Dr. Stuart Ainsworth. About 11,000 people a month are thought to die from venomous snake bites, similar to the number that died during the whole of the 2014-16 West Africa Ebola crises. A further 450,000 people a year are thought to suffer life-changing injuries such as amputation and permanent disability. The scale of the problem means snake bites are now classed as a priority neglected tropical disease. In developed regions such as Europe, Australia, and North America, snake bites kill only a handful of people each year, despite there being many venomous species. That is compared with 32,000 deaths in sub-Saharan Africa and twice as many in South Asia. Many rural communities in the tropics are at almost constant risk of snake bites, whether working in the field, traveling at dusk, or even sleeping in their homes at night. Young male farmers are the most at-risk group, followed by children. While a large rural population is a factor, health systems in some parts of Africa and Asia are often ill-prepared for coping with snake bites. Clinical training, emergency transport, and affordable medicine are often in short supply, with tragic consequences. Venomous snake bites typically cause three main types of life-threatening symptoms. Uncontrollable bleeding, paralysis, and irreversible tissue destruction. It is essential for snake bite victims to get the correct medicine as soon as possible following a snake bite. Antivenom is the medicine of choice for treating snake bites. It's made using the venom of the snake it is designed to treat. That means that many different versions are needed because there are so many venomous snakes found throughout the world. Cobras, mambas, crates, vipers, and pit vipers to name just a few. The toxins found in their venom differ from one group of snakes to the next, or even between the same group of snakes in a different region. This means the correct anti-venom is often hard to identify and can be very expensive. In Latin America, anti-venom is often produced in the country and subsidized by the government. Death rates are significantly higher in sub-Saharan Africa, where the best anti-venom costs $140 to $300 a vial, with 3 to 10 vials usually required to save a victim's life. As the typical Swazi farmer earns $600 a year, This medicine is out of reach for most. This situation has allowed weak or inappropriate medicine to flood the market over the past decade, particularly in Africa. These antivenoms often cost about $30 a vial, a fraction of the cost of proven products. Some African health ministries understandably saw this as a win-win situation, with more drugs available and at a lower cost. These products started being used in hospitals throughout much of the continent. However, there are now several reports that some of these medicines may be dangerously ineffective. Small-scale case studies from hospitals in both Ghana and the Central African Republic have suggested that when these cheaper medicines were used, fatality rates increased from 2% or fewer to more than 10%. Often, these antivenoms are made using snake venoms from a different region to where the product is being sold. For example, an antivenom made with Indian snake venom being used in Africa. Others are made with the right venoms, but with a low concentration of antibodies per dose, resulting in very weak medicines. This means the number of vials needed to successfully treat the patient shoots up from 3 to 10 to as many as 20 or 30. 
Ironically, this situation has prompted some established manufacturers to cut supply of their much-needed products as they become priced out of the market. These problems have been made worse by the lack of anti-venom testing. Most drugs have to be thoroughly independently tested with clinical trials to prove their effectiveness, but this is often not the case with anti-venom. National drug agencies sometimes approve products without strong evidence of their effectiveness or comparison with existing treatments. To tackle this, the World Health Organization has launched a pre-market testing scheme with the results due to be published later this year. This should allow health ministries, pharmacists, and clinicians to better understand which antivenoms are suitable for their region while identifying responsible manufacturers of affordable antivenoms. However, manufacturers do not have to take part in the scheme, and countries are not obliged to remove products from the market based on the results. Nevertheless, it is hoped that this World Health Organization seal of approval will strongly influence antivenom purchasing decisions throughout Africa. Effective antivenom is one part of solving the snakebite puzzle, but many other challenges remain. More work needs to be done to identify the communities most at risk and to ensure a sustainable flow of affordable medicine is sent there. Meanwhile, training more clinicians and healthcare workers in how to effectively treat snakebite victims would reduce the number of deaths. Finally, educating local communities about snake bites would help lower the risk of being bitten and mean appropriate action was more likely to be taken after a bite. Alright, here's a fun one from worldnewsdailyreport.com. Man turns himself into the FBI for killing Abraham Lincoln in 1865. 71-year-old Leroy Timothy Anderson claims he worked for 35 years as a time-traveling assassin for a secret governmental agency and says he has killed people at various times going from 1678 to 2239. The elderly man declared that his actions were all legitimate and ordered by the government, but that he fears his former employers might want to eliminate him because he knows too much. He claims that he was part of a program called the Kronos Project, which was designed, coordinated, and executed by the Central Intelligence Agency and the United States Special Operations Forces under the supervision of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. This ultra-secret program would have orchestrated more than 1,200 assassinations spreading out over almost all of human history, including many famous characters like Martin Luther King Jr., Julius Caesar, or Mahatma Gandhi. His story was clearly one of the most entertaining that I have ever heard, said FBI Director Christopher A. Ray. Mr. Anderson not only claims to have killed President Lincoln, but also 32 others, including at least 12 that are not even born yet, Ray told reporters. I know that conspiracy theorists will accuse us of covering up Lincoln's murder and stuff like that, but the FBI isn't going to open an investigation. I don't think this man killed anyone. I think he just lost contact with reality. According to the FBI, Mr. Anderson was previously diagnosed with dissociative disorder and schizophrenia, problems which could explain his strange confession. Abraham Lincoln was assassinated on Good Friday, April 14, 1865, while attending the play Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., as the American Civil War was drawn to a close. The assassination is generally believed to have been planned and carried out by the well-known stage actor John Wilkes Booth as part of a larger conspiracy in a bid to revive the Confederate cause. Mr. Booth was shot and killed by Union soldiers while hiding on a farm in Virginia only days after the crime. Eight other conspirators or suspects were tried and convicted, and four were hanged shortly thereafter. Here's another story from the Kentucky Book of the Dead. You can't keep a good man down. When the dead are buried, they're ideally supposed to stay put. That isn't always the case, however. Often in bygone days, grave robbers dug up bodies, as happened to the remains of William Shanklin, 
a farmer from Beechburg, Fleming County, who died on August 30, 1897. Three days after his burial, somebody unearthed his body in order to make off with his lungs, heart, and other organs for reasons known only to God. On other occasions, bodies were exhumed for legal reasons, or to be moved to another resting place, or just because the next of kin got curious and wanted to sneak a peek. Take, for instance, Samuel Stone of Hurricane, Crittenden County, who lost two of his children within a fortnight on April 1896. Having decided that he wanted a photograph taken of them, he had the children's bodies exhumed. He hauled the two little coffins on a wagon to a studio in Sheridan where he had each child photographed. Then he had the coffins reburied in Hurricane Cemetery. In February of 1881, the daughter of James Braden of Pulaski County married a man named John Hines. Only a week later, he died of consumption. The young bride's mind snapped, and one night in early March, she was found in the cemetery holding the disinterred body of her late husband. She explained to onlookers that she thought she could bring him back to life. A similar incident came to light on the morning of February 1st, 1911, when the sealed coffin of attorney George Softley was found lying atop his Lincoln County grave. Police soon had Amanda I. Harrison in custody. She admitted to having exhumed Softly, who had once represented her in a divorce case, explaining that God had told her in a vision that the lawyer would come back to life if his body were exposed to the air. She had managed single-handedly to dig up his casket, but had to abandon her plan when dawn came and she feared being seen. The press did not report what happened next, but it is probable that Miss Harrison was taken to a nice, quiet place for a long rest. In January 1887, a woman who had been widowed for years visited her husband's grave at Mount Olive Cemetery in Mason County. When she noticed the dirt was disturbed, she feared his body had been stolen. After much beseeching, the sexton at last agreed to grab a spade and satisfy her curiosity. When the lid was opened, she saw that her husband was still there and with seemingly petrified facial features. She cannot account for her desire to have the grave opened, remarked a contemporary news account, and says she wouldn't have done it again for all the world. Fear of grave robbery led the parents of Scott Harrison of Jessamine County to extreme measures when he died in April 1896. A press report explained, His parents, believing his body would be stolen, had the grave opened and are secretly watching it. Of course, the fact the newspapers described their plan kind of spoiled the secret, the wife of Anaja Humphreys of Crocus Creek, Adair County, was buried in the local cemetery after she died in 1898. The fact that he was separated from his wife preyed on the old man's mind night and day until he had a happy idea. Just before Christmas, neighbors saw him building a vault near his house. When the work was completed, Mr. Humphreys hitched his horse to a sled and drove to the graveyard. Without considering the social properties of his actions, and despite the vehement objections of his children, he exhumed his wife's casket and dragged it home. He placed the casket in the homemade vault, where, like the protagonist in Edgar Allan Poe's poem, Annabelle Lee, he frequently opened the casket and wiled away dull care by looking at his wife's remains. In February 1899, the Columbian News remarked, Mr. Humphreys was in Columbia a short time ago, and he informed Mr. J.O. Russell, a prominent merchant of this place, that his departed wife looked perfectly natural and that there was no odor whatever about the vault. He said that it was a great comfort for him to sit for hours and gaze upon the face of the one who in life rejoiced in his prosperity and who wept when adversity came. Mr. Humphreys died by the side of the road in October 1905, when he was 95 years old. As the Humphreys case suggests, sometimes bodies whose eternal slumber was disturbed were in surprisingly good condition. This never failed to generate intense amazement, especially if the body had not been embalmed. When the body of Abraham Wilson was exhumed from the family burying ground in 1878 in order to be moved to Danville Cemetery in Boyle County, it was noted that even though he had been dead for 17 years, his appearance and clothing were as fresh as on the day of burial, marveled the Danville local. The body of one Mrs. Young, who had died of cholera in 1854, was removed from its grave in Paris, Kentucky, in 1872, and taken to Mount Sterling for reburial. When her daughters peered through the glass faceplate and the coffin lid, 
They were amazed to find that she was in near-mint condition, right down to the bouquet on her chest and the rosebuds in her hair. John Wilson of Louisville had a three-year-old son, Harry, who died in November 1868. He was buried in a cemetery east of the city and slept in peace until around 1884, when he was exhumed and taken to Falls Cemetery for burial in the family plot. The boy's kin wanted to take a peek at him and found to their surprise that he looked perfect, even retaining his curly blonde hair. In 1895, the Wilsons decided to build a monument on their plot, but in order to do so, little Harry had to be exhumed and moved a second time, as he was buried on the spot where the monument was to stand. Naturally, everyone wondered if he would still look as natural as he had when they last saw him in 1884. They found that he looked as spruce as ever, with one difference. At some point, his hair had grown to over a foot long. In October 1892, eight bodies were removed from a farm five miles from Louisville on the Shelbyville Pike to be reburied in the city's eastern cemetery. One small metallic coffin contained the body of a child named Archie Cock, who was so well preserved that he looked as if he had just gone to sleep, though he had died at least a half century before. A fresh-looking yellow rose was still pinned to his shroud. When Undertaker Al Smith dug up the body of John Stafford in Louisville's Pennsylvania Run Cemetery on April 30, 1897, he found that the wooden coffin and Mr. Stafford's clothes had crumbled to dust, he having been buried for 46 years, but the body itself was in perfect shape, though white as Perry and marble. Mrs. Stafford was also found to be in the same peculiar condition. Local scientists and doctors expressed interest in the strange case. William Evans, a Davies County settler, and his daughter Josie were buried in a family cemetery, but were removed in 1890 to Elmwood Cemetery in Owensboro. W.W. Harris of Habit wrote to the Owensboro Messenger and Examiner on the occasion. He had been buried 27 years, but was found to be petrified. Every feature was almost perfect, with a gloss over him like china. I was deeply impressed as I beheld for the first time since babyhood the face of dear old grandpa. Josie had been in her grave 21 years and when taken up looked like wax. Every feature was there. A wreath of flowers was still round her head. A white silk bow and a small gold pin rested on her bosom. She looked as if she was in peaceful slumber. Several preserved bodies were found when the corpses in Lexington's Presbyterian Cemetery were removed and taken to other graveyards in summer, 1889. In fact, for the next six years, the papers reported on discoveries made there. In one instance, the body of a woman buried in 1857 had disintegrated into a pile of bones, ashes, and hair, but her expensive silk dress was in perfect condition. Another anonymous body in an iron coffin was dubbed the bride since she had been buried in a bridal gown, her form still retaining all of its naturalness and beauty. Not even the oldest inhabitants knew who she was, and her identity and tragic story remain unknown. At the end of April 1890, two metal caskets were unearthed, each containing a preserved body. One was Corinne Sylvester, who had died in 1858. She had so well fought off the ravages of deterioration that onlookers saw that her dress was a slate-colored muslin with dark velvet trimmings. The other body was that of a Union soldier in uniform, complete with medals. He was in flawless shape except for his sunken eyes and was thought to be Jonathan Cannon of Winchester, Clark County. As late as August 1895, Workmen found the metallic coffin of a perfectly preserved 10-year-old girl who probably had been underground about 60 years. The reader will notice that in many of these cases the corpses had been buried in metal caskets which slow or prevent decay. Impressive as these incidents were to our ancestors, even more spectacular were cases in which the bodies were not just perfectly preserved but seemed actually to be petrified. Kentucky-born skeptic Joe Nickel has noted that most of these petrifications actually were adipocere, a waxy substance that forms on the fatty tissues of buried bodies due to moisture. Another theory mentioned in the Louisville Courier-Journal in 1886 holds that corpses in limestone country petrify when lime-rich water seeps into caskets and forms a hard crust around a body. For example, the occupants of the Buena Vista Cemetery, which happened to be on limestone, 
were moved to the Mother of God Cemetery near Latonia, Kenton County, in October 1895. A man named Rocamp was found to be perfectly preserved, but with a petrified body. Similarly, in July 1822, a woman dead 11 years was unearthed in Bourbon County. Her exhumers were astounded to find her body intact and solid as a rock, though the coffin had disintegrated. An old account tellingly notes that the corpse's specific gravity was about the same as that of common limestone. According to the same account, her countenance had undergone so small an alteration that her husband, it is said, on beholding her, fainted. In 1900, the Peak brothers of Trimble County had their brother Tom, sister Martha, and mother exhumed from the family farm and moved to a cemetery. Brother and sister had been buried for 27 years and 15 years, respectively, and were in deplorable shape but the matriarch had been buried for 17 years in a leaky metal casket that allowed water seepage. As a result, her face was perfectly preserved with the appearance of a statue. Even her hair resembled that painted on a china doll. In a 1999 issue of the Skeptical Inquirer, Joe Nickel mentions the case of a petrified girl that has assumed legendary status in the vicinity of Easel, Morgan County. Nichols' research determined that the girl in question was Nancy A. Wheeler, who died at age 17 on October 1, 1885, and that the exhumation most likely occurred in late February, 1888. Legend holds that Wheeler's casket was filled with water when taken up out of the ground, so we may safely attribute her remarkable preservation to natural, albeit gruesome, means, such as limestone minerals or her tissue turning into a deposier. The most horrifying discovery that could come from opening a grave was that the occupant had been buried alive, a not infrequent occurrence in those wonderful days gone by. Once the practice of embalming gained acceptance, people realized that it had a side benefit. Not only could the dead be preserved, but it also made premature burial an impossibility. Individuals who took ill in pre-embalming days had good reason to worry, and in latter days too if their relatives were too poor or too cheap to spring for the procedure. In November 1875, for example, the Scottsville-Allen County Argus reported that a mercifully unnamed woman who had been buried a short distance from town was exhumed so the body could be moved to another cemetery. When the coffin was opened, gravediggers found the woman lying on her left side and bearing unmistakable evidences of a struggle to obtain freedom. An editorial in the Courier-Journal of November 9th half-heartedly attempted to persuade readers that the Argus had perhaps jumped to conclusions, that authentic premature burials were rare, and that just maybe chemical or mechanical causes had turned the woman's corpse on its side. Another unfortunate was H.T. Huddleston of Riley Station, Marion County, who was buried on July 3, 1894. It was noticed that his body perspired constantly, even after his quote-unquote death, and after he had been interred, his relatives grew apprehensive that they had buried him before his time. They had the coffin exhumed, and when the lid was opened, they found that Huddleston was indeed dead, but his face bore a distorted grimace that had not been present at the time of burial. Contemplate the case of George Stutt, a 25-year-old Kentucky saloon proprietor who seemed to have died of pneumonia on January 8, 1888. He was buried the next day. Nothing seemed amiss until June, when Stutt's family arranged to have him exhumed and moved to the family plot in Calvary Cemetery, Louisville. His sisters and friends insisted on opening the coffin in order to see Stutt's face one last time, and soon wished they hadn't. The glass under the lid had been shattered, leaving shards inside the coffin. Stutt was lying face down with his arms drawn up under his chest. When he was turned over, they found that his face had been lacerated by the broken glass. The undertaker, who had had charge of the body, swore that he had embalmed Stutt with an arsenic solution, which would have killed him had he not already been dead. He theorized that if the coffin had been roughly handled when being consigned to the earth, it would explain the broken glass and shifted body within. Stutt's family didn't buy it, pointing out that there would be little room in a coffin for a body to accidentally turn over that cuts indicated he had been face up when the glass broke and that his arms were in a drawn position. I have uncovered dozens of genuine instances of premature burial while doing research on other more wholesome matters but found few that happened in Kentucky. However, I did find reports of people who came very close to meeting the most horrifying of conceivable fates. 
On January 20, 1887, a physician pronounced the one-year-old daughter of Louisville stonecutter Willem Sperlenvogel dead. The next day, as the parents rode to St. Louis Cemetery in a carriage, they heard disconcerting sounds emanating from the tiny casket. The driver broke the lid open with his whip handle, and the Sperlenvogels found their child still alive. They hurried home and called in the doctor, but by the time he arrived, the girl had died for certain. She was buried on January 22nd no doubt to her parents' trepidation. Luckier was the child of Lee Gamble of Laytonsville, Christian County, who seemed to have died of typhoid on or around December 15, 1900. The child was actually prepared for burial and was just about to be lowered into the cold, cold ground when a doctor noticed signs of life. The Bath County funeral director, who was preparing the body of Mrs. McGuire Sanders for burial in May 1889, was surprised to find that she was still alive. The funeral was postponed, a newspaper account noted, with admirable dryness and understatement. Another disturbing example occurred in June 1890 in the Four Mile neighborhood in Kenton County. Mrs. Jacob Corb, who had been suffering from a long illness, died on a Monday. Her funeral was held in the neighborhood church on Wednesday, after which her casket was borne to the empty grave in the churchyard. But en route, a loud groan issued from the casket, causing the panicked pallbearers to drop it. When the lid was opened, Mrs. Corb lay within, eyes wide open. When she sat up, witnesses fled, fainted, screamed, or stood helpless in terror. The husband, who had thought himself a widower, pulled her out of the casket and carried her to the church. There she looked around in fear, unable to speak. She got to her feet, as if to run away, but then collapsed. A doctor showed up and declared her authentically dead, presumably from her long-standing illness, though the horror of waking up in a casket probably didn't do her any good. Her body was replaced in the casket and buried. A contemporary account noted, people in that portion of the country are said to be much excited, and many do not believe Mrs. Corb should have been buried. Tyree Ratcliffe of Carter County, one of Denton's oldest and most highly respected citizens, died of heart failure on May 3, 1903, but woke up as relatives prepared his funeral. They had gone so far as to dig his grave, and had Ratcliffe not revived when he did, he certainly would have been buried alive. One wonders how many cases of premature burial were never discovered. In 1890, the coal mining town of Centralia, Pennsylvania, was home to more than 2,800 people. Just like in any other town, rows of houses lined the streets, townsfolk had barbecues in their backyards, and everyone put up Christmas decorations during December. In 1962, the Centralia mine fire propelled the quiet borough into the spotlight overnight. The routine controlled burn went below ground, catching the natural reserves of anthracite coal on fire under the community. It never stopped. Conditions became so dangerous people left voluntarily or the government coerced them to leave. Fifty years later, the ground still burns, and the town, if you can call it that, is no more than a ghostly condemned zone. From HistoricMysteries.com, the story is entitled Centralia Mine Fire, Devastation from Underground. By Kimberly Lynn. Centralia was founded in 1866 in Pennsylvania's Columbia County between routes 61 and 42 by mining engineer Alexander Ray. With an abundance of anthracite coal under the ground worth billions of dollars, the town became prosperous. The mines supported a population of around 1,500 people, and the number continued to grow until about the early 20th century. The town's heyday came in the early 1900s when it reached a population boom of around 2,800 residents. In the 1950s, it was still a small, close-knit community of schools, churches, neighborhoods, and hard-working adults who mined coal or worked the stores that supported the town. On May 25, 1962, the quaint mining town changed forever. The town council wanted to get ready for their big Memorial Day celebration, However, the illegal garbage dump left an unsightly mess that would interfere with their plans. So, they discussed their options and decided to burn it. 
The local firefighters lit the blaze and burned out the trash. Then, at the end of the day, they put out all the visible flames that they could see above the surface. What nobody knew right away, however, was that an old mining seam with flammable coal and coal dust beneath the town had caught on fire. Flames continued to crop up around the initial burning site over the next few days. Several efforts were made to put out the fire, but it continued to grow and spread below ground. The network of old mining tunnels stoked the fires with a steady supply of oxygen, and the rich anthracite coal deposits offered it plenty of burnable fuel. For weeks, random fires would spring up as the coals burned. Even without visible fire, the stench of burning coal and smoke permeated the town. For years, the authorities tried to put a stop to the fires, but their attempts were futile. They tried pumping water into the shafts. This only left the town at risk of dangerous steam explosions. Additionally, they dumped in clay and slurry. Those failed too. For almost 20 years, the people of Centralia coexisted with the fire. However, this less than cozy arrangement was unsustainable as conditions had become ever more threatening. In 1969, three families had to leave their homes due to the presence of toxic fumes. In November 1979, John Coddington, who owned a gas station, noticed steam rising from the lot next to his station. He had four underground gas tanks holding a total of 9,000 gallons of gasoline. Thus, John became concerned. Then, in early December, he saw steam coming from his basement floor, which was warm to the touch, and measured 136 degrees Fahrenheit. Officials began monitoring the temperature of the gas. The heat was steadily rising. As a result, the Pennsylvania Police Fire Marshal ordered the shutdown of the station. Coddington had to pump all the gas tanks and fill them with water to prevent an explosion. In 1981, Coddington's gas and service station was demolished. Also in 1981, on Valentine's Day, a steaming 150-foot fissure that once served as a mine shaft opened up under a 12-year-old boy, Todd Domboski. He fell in about six feet but grabbed onto a tree root. His cousin, Eric Wolfgang, heard Todd's screams and ran over to pull him out. Later, officials measured the temperature inside the hole at 350 degrees. Todd was uninjured, but it was a wake-up call for the people of the town. A few weeks later, an elderly man was rushed to the hospital for carbon monoxide poisoning after he passed out, a direct result of the underground fire. Officials indicated that had it been only minutes later, the man probably would not have survived. The Centralia coal fire brought not only smoke, odors, and dangerous sinkholes, but also many harmful and carcinogenic chemicals into the air. Specifically, Direct hazards to humans and the environment posed by coal fires include emissions of pollutants such as CO, CO2, nitrogen oxides, particulate matter, sulfur dioxide, toxic organic compounds, and potentially toxic trace elements such as arsenic, mercury, and selenium. It was too dangerous for the townsfolk to stay. Divergent factions formed in the community. Some folks wanted the government to buy them out so they could make a fresh start someplace else. Others wanted to attempt to maintain their community. Additionally, a number of citizens suspected a government and big business conspiracy that would remove everyone from the town to free up the coal reserves to large mining companies. The once tight-knit community was turning against each other. The outcome of these differences was a two-year period of intense intra-community conflict. Town meetings ended in shouting or fistfights. Telephone threats were made, car tires slashed, and at least one firebombing occurred. Many neighbors, and even some family members, no longer spoke to one another. Stephen R. Couch In 1983, the government allocated $42 million for the Centralia Mine Fire Acquisition Relocation Project, a voluntary buyout program for land and business owners. Over the next several years, almost everyone was bought out of their properties at the fair market value. By 1991, almost everyone had moved away. Once they left, their homes were leveled, leaving only empty streets behind. The small minority of 58 people refused to leave the only place they had ever known and loved. They felt betrayed and scorned those who left. In 1992, Pennsylvania ordered the remaining people out, but gave them one last chance for the buyout program. They then issued an eminent domain and took legal but not physical possession of the last houses. 
This meant the state now owned all the properties left in the town. The remainders filed a lawsuit which took 20 years to resolve. Eight residents remained in the city until they either chose to move or passed away. However, those people no longer owned their properties. The government did. Today, only a few folks are all that's left in the Centralia ghost town. The burning town in Pennsylvania has become something of an interesting tourist attraction. Many people who visit the abandoned city say that it has the feel of a post-apocalyptic movie or a war zone. Concrete remnants are all that remain of the streets that once contained rows of houses. Twisted and bent stairs, sidewalks, and the old Highway 61 bear the large cracks and charring from the fiery heat below the city. A few homes, one church, and the graveyards remain. The Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church even holds weekly services. Sometimes smoke rises out of the ground in one old cemetery, which is very close to where the fire started. The Graffiti Highway is probably the most famous remaining attraction in the old town. Once, this was part of Route 61, but the enormous asphalt ruptures from the fire beneath the ground caused the state to reroute the highway in 1994. Graffiti now covers the three-quarter mile roadway, which lies in disrepair and abandonment. Like most graffiti around the world, some messages are artistic and uplifting, while others are vulgar and filled with expletives. The burning Pennsylvania ghost town has managed to live on in movies, TV, radio, and print and online sources. Several documentaries have aired. In 1982, Martin Sheen narrated the PBS program Centralia Fire. Chris Perkle and Georgie Rowland put out The Town That Was in 2007. Recently, in 2017, Allison Kircher released Centralia, Pennsylvania's Lost Town. All the documentaries tell the poignant and controversial story from the beginning with interviews and historic footage and photos. Additionally, the French-Canadian motion film Silent Hill received its inspiration for its horror story from the burning ghost town. For a hundred years, mining families made the small mining borough their home. Then one fateful decision erased nearly everything they built. Most of those people painfully relocated and started their lives all over again, while a few stayed in the lonely town where they quietly passed away or still live. Once the last few folks move on, the only thing that will remain is the fire which will burn on and on for hundreds, if not thousands, of years into the future. After more than 80 years, when the night winds wail, people still claim Mamie Thurman walks the hills on 22 Mountain near Holden, West Virginia. Chilling apparitions are rumored to be seen, and some claim to have picked a woman up on the lonely mountain, only later to discover their back seat empty. So, the legend grows as people wonder if Mamie's ghost is crying out for justice. This story is from LoganWV.us. Does Mamie Thurman still walk those hills? Death came creeping in the dark to 31-year-old, dark-eyed brunette Mamie Thurman. On June 22, 1932, her lifeless body was found where it had been dumped on 22 Mountain, which was then called Trace Mountain. Garland Davis, a young, deaf, mute, stumbled upon the gruesome scene while picking blackberries. Little did he know that his discovery would lead to sensational headlines and still have people wondering who killed Mamie Thurman. On the same day Mamie's body was discovered, a warrant was sworn out by Magistrate Elba Hatfield. At about 8.30 in the evening, Harry Robertson and his Negro handyman Clarence Stevenson were both arrested and taken to the Logan County Jail for questioning. 29-year-old Stevenson was a native of Chattanooga, Tennessee. He had been in Logan County for nine years and worked at several mines before going to work for the Robertson family. He had never been married and lived in the attic of the Robertson home. Stevenson did many odd jobs for the Robertson family, including washing dishes, but his main duty was to feed and care for Mr. Robertson's dogs. Robertson was a prominent sportsman, worked for the National Bank of Logan, was a city political figure and treasurer of the Logan Public Library. 
Robertson's wife was the treasurer of the Logan Women's Club, and both were active church members. Robertson admitted to police that he had been having an intimate relationship with the deceased woman and told how he arranged dates with Mrs. Thurman with the help of his colored handyman. He would tell his wife he was going fox hunting, and they would take their guns and drive off in Robertson's Ford. Stevenson would drive him to one of the rendezvous points that Mrs. Thurman knew well. Logan County was in an era of economic and political change, but the big news in 1932 wasn't about the Great Depression that gripped the nation. Rumors and gossip ran rampant as tongues wagged on every Logan street corner with people forming their own theories on who killed Mamie Thurman. Mamie was described as an active church worker, perfect lady, very nice lady who minded her own business and a young woman of quiet demeanor who spoke to only people she knew. Others claimed she was the vixen of Stratton Street and a temptress. The Logan Banner published the Mamie Thurman story from their files in 1985 and reporter Dwight Williamson declared Mamie a Depression-era version of an 80s liberated woman. Mamie was born in Kentucky on September 12, 1900. Her 48-year-old husband, Jack, was also from Kentucky, and he was 16 years older than his wife. The Thurmans had lived in the city of Logan for eight years and rented a two-room garage apartment behind Harry Robertson's house on Stratton Street. The house faced Main Street and was located approximately where the Logan Bank and Trust once stood. Jack Thurman had worked as a Logan City patrolman for 15 months prior to his wife's death. Mr. Thurman's job was due to the efforts of Harry Robertson, who was president of the city commission. Mamie Thurman's funeral was no doubt the most bizarre funeral ever held in Logan County. The service took place on Friday, June 24th, and was attended by 550 women and 30 men. The funeral was conducted at the Nybert Methodist Memorial Church, where Mamie was said to be a member. Pastor Reverend B.C. Gamble and Reverend Robert F. Caverly, pastor of the First Baptist Church, officiated. Reverend Gamble did not deliver a sermon, but read a Bible scripture from John. He told of a woman that was brought before Jesus who was said to have been caught in the very act of adultery. It was the people's intention to stone her to death, but when Jesus asked anyone without sin to cast the first stone, her accusers left. Jesus didn't condemn the woman, but told her to go and sin no more. This is the text, Reverend Gamble said. Then he paused for a few moments. Develop your own sermon on that basis, he said as dead silence was followed by weeping throughout the congregation. The obituary was then read, and the service was concluded. Mamie Thurman's death certificate filed at the courthouse states that she was buried at Logan Memorial Park in McConnell. Harris Funeral Home records show a charge for $35 for moving Mrs. Thurman's body to Bradsfordsville, Kentucky. However, the cemetery in Kentucky has no record of the internment of Mamie's body. It remains a mystery to this day just where Mamie Thurman was buried. The day of the funeral, state troopers searched the home of Harry Robertson and found several blood-stained rags in the basement. Attempts had been made to remove several spots from the basement floor that were believed to be blood. A Charleston chemist, T.A. Borodale, later identified the stains as human blood, but at that time, courts refused to admit blood tests into evidence. A razor was also found, and they discovered a hole in the wall which appeared to be made by a bullet. Bloodstains were found on the window, fender, and seat of Robertson's Ford sedan. The car was mainly used to transport hunting dogs when he went fox hunting on 22 Mountain, where he owned a hunting cabin. The back seat of the car had been removed, and a 6 by 8 foot tarp placed over the back of the front seat and rear part of the car. Curtains made of canvas were hung from the doors. Mamie's body was found about a mile from Robertson's hunting cabin. Judge Naaman Jackson granted a bond to Harry Robertson on June 27th, and Robertson drove home alone in his Packard car. Defense attorney C.C. Chambers, who represented Robertson and Clarence Stevenson, Bruce McDonald of McDonald Land Company, T.G. Moore and C.L. Estep were named as sureties to the $10,000 bond for Robertson. Jack Thurman, husband of the deceased, was granted a furlough by the Logan Police Department after his wife's funeral, but returned for the hearing and trial. 
He took a trip to Louisville, Kentucky before the hearing started. While he was in town, he visited Mamie's sisters at an orphanage. He gave each of the girls $2. This was a considerable amount of money during the Depression years. The children had been placed in the orphanage after Mamie's father was killed in a gun battle with police in Ashland, Kentucky. On July 5th, the banner announced that famed Judge James Damron of Huntington would aid in the Thurman investigation gratis. Judge Damron was one of West Virginia's most distinguished criminal lawyers and judges. In a letter written to prosecuting attorneys L.P. Hager and Emmett Skaggs, Judge Damron was quoted as saying he agreed with them that Mamie Thurman's brutal murder was a drastic deed and the handiwork of a well-laid-out conspiracy. He said he believed the perpetrators of the foul and damnable murder should be apprehended and brought to justice for the sake of the good name of Logan County. In a letter back to Judge Damron, Attorney Skaggs said he agreed with him and Damron was added as the third attorney for the prosecution. Negro handyman Clarence Stevenson sent a letter on July 8th to his sister Josie Carpenter, who was a maid at the Pioneer Hotel in Logan. He wrote that he would die before he would lie on Robertson or his wife. He asked in the letter for Josie to take a message to Mrs. Robertson. Clarence wanted Mrs. Robertson to know that he had been moved to Williamson Jail to keep anyone from seeing him. Tell her I will not do anything to hurt Mr. Harry or her. He wanted his sister to ask Mrs. Robinson to stand up and help him and Mr. Harry. He indicated it was going to be hard on both of them, but said that the police didn't know anything to hurt them. Assistant Prosecutor Emmett F. Skaggs, who described Mamie Thurman as Logan's most popular woman, made a statement to the press on July 26th that he would not drag the name of any person into this case for the purpose of getting even with them just to satisfy curiosity seekers. He said that some people were more interested in scandal than finding out who really murdered Mamie Thurman and that because some prominent people were involved, the public didn't think he was proceeding fast enough. Skaggs stated that murder carried an extreme penalty and adultery was only a misdemeanor. He declared that in his honest opinion, the people in Logan County knew a lot that might shed some light on the case, but that they were not divulging information because they didn't want to get involved. He described the crime as the most brutish crime in Logan history. At his request, the county court agreed to offer a $1,000 reward for new evidence that would lead to a conviction. Oscar Townsend rented a room from the Robertson family and worked at the bank with Mr. Robertson. He said there were ill feelings between Mamie Thurman and Mrs. Robertson and that for some time they had not been going around together. Mr. Townsend also informed police that he traded a 32 caliber gun to Harry Robertson for a 38 pistol. Another examination was then made of Robertson's home and his car by Trooper Satterfield, Coroner Elba Hatfield, and Dr. Rowan. A blood clot was found underneath the rubber floor mat in the car. It appeared an attempt had been made to wash the floor of the car, but the blood clot was overlooked because it clung to the mat. Robertson kept the 38 pistol underneath his pillow at night and it was believed to be the gun that killed Mamie Thurman. A knife and a large piece of blood-stained canvas were also found at the Robertson home. All of this evidence was taken to police headquarters. On July 29th, throngs of people started gathering around the Logan Courthouse at 6 o'clock in the morning with some carrying their own chairs. Long before Squire Hatfield entered the circuit courtroom, people had filled the room. They were eager to get inside the courtroom to watch the preliminary hearing of Harry Robertson and Clarence Stevenson, who had been arrested for the murder of Mamie Thurman, and more than a thousand people witnessed the proceedings. Reporter Mary Scales said people watching the witnesses' antics must have felt they were witnessing the season's latest comedy. Jack Thurman arrived at 10 o'clock sharp and walked across the room to Attorney Hatfield. He looked pale but seemed composed. Harry Robertson and Clarence Stevenson came into the courtroom 15 minutes later under guard of state troopers Satterfield and Thompson. Stevenson's hands were cuffed, but Robertson's were free. Robertson took his seat at the witness table, and Stevenson sat next to him. Stevenson looked straight ahead and seemed calm, although necks craned to look at both of them. Robertson kept wetting his lips and glancing around the room. At 10.35, Mrs. Robertson was escorted by Robertson's rumor, Oscar Townsend. She walked to her husband's side and appeared to have kissed him lightly on the cheek. 
she placed her arm around his shoulders and sat down next to him. They talked in a whisper for about ten minutes. Townsend took a seat behind them. Judge Estep and C.C. Chambers, attorneys for Robertson and Stevenson, sat at one end of the table, while prosecutors Hager and Skaggs at the other end. Many Logan County prominent citizens, some who were associated with suspect Harry Robertson, served on the grand jury. Judge Naaman Jackson's instructions to the jury were that since the last term of court there had been more murders than usual, and the only way for them to make people understand the value of life was to prosecute the criminals according to the law. He said the murder of Mrs. Mamie Thurman was one of the most gruesome in the history of Logan County and in the state. If there's evidence enough to indict the parties responsible, the court expects you to do so, Jackson said. When Harry Robertson was called to the stand, he shocked everyone as he told of his two-year relationship with Mamie Thurman. He often met Mamie at the key club located in the heart of Logan. According to Robertson, the club was frequented by a number of well-known businessmen and their lady friends. It was a place where both male and female members were said to have pass keys. Robertson said that drinking parties, illicit affairs, and strange unions all took place at this club. During the hearing, the club was also referred to as the Amen Club, the Social Club, and the Logan Business Men's Club. Robertson said Mamie gave him a list of 16 men with whom she had illicit affairs. He claimed the list was given to him about a year ago when they both worked at the Guyon Valley Bank. One of the men is dead, all except three live in the city of Logan, and all are married but one, he testified. He said he continued seeing Mamie even though she refused to stop seeing the other men. Robertson said that Clarence Stevenson was often the go-between for his meetings with Mamie, and Stevenson later corroborated his statement. Magistrate Elba Hatfield told the grand jury that all the evidence was circumstantial, but claimed it very damaging against both defendants. For that reason, he ruled that Robertson and Stevenson should be held to answer any indictments returned by the grand jury. The jury ended a four-day inquiry on September 15th, and the following day the banner headlines cried out, Harry Robertson not indicted. Clarence Stevenson was indicted by the grand jury and would stand trial for the murder of Mamie Thurman. There was vigilante action considered against the colored handyman, Clarence Stevenson, and the KKK was busy making sure a swift carriage of justice took place. Some of those who wore the white hoods and burn crosses were said to be principals in the trial. Some believed Stevenson had sex with Mrs. Thurman, but Harry Robertson testified that he did not. During the hearing and the trial, Stevenson often referred to Robertson as Mr. Harry. Years later, a man who remembered the 1930s well said, Back then, if you told your black man to go jump off the Logan Bridge, he would. During the hearing, Chambers and Emmett Skaggs clashed over who brought the evidence out about the supposed relationship between Stevenson and Mrs. Thurman. At one time, during the heat of the exchange of words, the crowd actually cheered at some of Chambers' remarks. When Stevenson testified at the hearing, he told of being moved from the Logan jail by the state police to Williamson. They went by the way of Pigeon Roost over the isolated road on Trace Mountain, now called 22 Mountain. Two cars were parked beside the road and shots were fired in their direction. Stevenson said the troopers told him they thought it was a mob and asked if he was afraid. They urged him to tell all he knew or it was likely he would be taken off. Stevenson replied, if I was making a dying statement, it would be, I don't know any more than I've told. At one point during the hearing, Stevenson pointed toward the courtroom as if he saw someone he was afraid of, but would not tell what he saw. The prosecution asked, What do you see? Mrs. Thurman? Stevenson refused to answer. That was part one of this two-part story. The second part will be included in next week's episode. In the Navajo culture, a skinwalker is a type of harmful witch who has the ability to turn into, possess, or disguise themselves as an animal. 
This witch is called Yi Nadalushi by the Navajo, which translates to with it he goes on all fours. It is just one of several types of Navajo witches and is considered the most volatile and dangerous. From the website legendsofamerica.com, Navajo Skinwalkers, Witches of the Southwest. For the Navajo people, witchcraft is just another part of their spirituality and one of the ways of their lives. As such, witchcraft has long been part of their culture, history, and traditions. Witches exist alongside humans and are not supernaturals. The Navajo believe there are places where the powers of both good and evil are present and that those powers can be harnessed for either. Medicine men utilize these powers to heal and aid members of their communities, while those who practice Navajo witchcraft seek to direct the spiritual forces to cause harm or misfortune to others. This type of Navajo witchcraft is known as the witchery way, which uses human corpses in various ways, such as tools from the bones, and concoctions that are used to curse, harm, or kill intended victims. The knowledge of these powers is passed down from the elders through the generations. The Navajo are part of a larger culture area that also includes the Pueblo people, Apache, Hopi, Ute, and other groups that also have their own versions of the Skinwalker, but each includes a malevolent witch capable of transforming itself into an animal. Among these tribes, a number of stories and descriptions have been told throughout the years about the skinwalkers. Sometimes these witches evolved from living their lives as respected healers or spiritual guides who later chose to use their powers for evil. Though they can be either male or female, they are more often male. They walk freely among the tribe during the day and secretly transform under the cover of night. In order to become a skinwalker, he or she must be initiated by a secret society which requires the most evil of deeds, the killing of a close family member, most often a sibling. After this task has been completed, the individual then acquires supernatural powers, which gives them the ability to shapeshift into animals. Most often they're seen in the forms of coyotes, wolves, foxes, cougars, dogs, and bears, but can take the shape of any animal. Then they wear the skins of the animals they transform into, hence the name Skinwalker. Sometimes they also wore animal skulls or antlers atop their heads, which brought them more power. They choose what animal they wanted to turn into, depending on the abilities needed for a particular task, such as speed, strength, endurance, stealth, claws, teeth, etc. They may transform again if trying to escape from pursuers. Because of this, the Navajo consider it taboo for its members to wear the pelt of any predatory animal. However, sheepskin, leather, and buckskin are acceptable. The skinwalkers are also able to take possession of the bodies of human victims if a person locks eyes with them. After taking control, the witch can make its victims do and say things that they wouldn't otherwise. Once they were shapeshifted, one way that others could tell that they were not a real animal is that their eyes are very different from those of the animal. Instead, their eyes are very human, and when lights are shined on them, they turn bright red. Alternatively, when they are in human form, their eyes look more like animals. The evil society of the witches gather in dark caves or secluded places for several purposes. To initiate new members, plot their activities, harm people from a distance with black magic, and perform dark ceremonial rites. These ceremonies are similar to other tribal affairs, including dancing, feasts, rituals, and sand painting, but were corrupted with dark connotations. The evildoers are also said to engage in necrophilia with female corpses, commit cannibalism, incest, and grave robberies. During these gatherings, the skinwalkers shapeshift into their animal forms or go about naked, wearing only beaded jewelry and ceremonial paint. The leader of the skinwalkers is usually an old man, who is a very powerful and long-lived skinwalker. Skinwalkers also have other powers, including reading others' minds, controlling their thoughts and behavior, causing disease and illness, destroying property, and even death. Those who have talked of their encounters with these evil beings describe a number of ways to know if a skinwalker is near. 
They make sounds around homes, such as knocking on windows, banging on walls, and scraping noises on the roof. On some occasions, they've been spied peering through windows. More often, they appear in front of vehicles in hopes of causing a serious accident. It is said that in addition to being able to shapeshift, the skinwalker is also able to control the creatures of the night, such as wolves and owls, and make them do its bidding. Some are able to call up the spirits of the dead and reanimate the corpses to attack their enemies. Because of this, the Indians rarely ventured out alone. Its supernatural powers are uncanny, as they are said to run faster than a car and have the ability to jump high cliffs. They are extremely fast, agile, impossible to catch, and leave tracks that are larger than those of any animal. When they have been seen, they've been described as not quite human and not fully animal. They are usually naked, but some have reported seeing the creature wearing tattered shirts or jeans. The skinwalker kills out of greed, anger, envy, spite, or revenge. It also robs graves for personal wealth and to collect much-needed ingredients for use in black magic. These witches live on the unexpired lives of their victims and they must continually kill or perish themselves. Skinwalkers and other witches have long been blamed for all manner of unexpected struggles and tragedies through the years, including sickness, drought, poor crops, and sudden deaths. Even smaller or individual problems such as windstorms during dances, alienation of affection by mates, the death of livestock, and reversal of fortune were often believed to be the work of a witch. This was most apparent with the Navajo Witch Purge of 1878, which initially evolved from a cultural response to so many people moving across and onto their lands. After a series of wars with the U.S. Army, the Navajo were expelled from their land and forced to march to the Bosque Redondo in New Mexico in what is known as the Long Walk of the Navajo in 1864. There, the people suffered from bad water, failed crops, illness, and death, reducing their numbers dramatically. After four years, the government finally admitted they had made a mistake, and the Navajo were allowed to return to their homeland in the Four Corners area. During these years, many of the tribe's members were said to have turned into shape-shifting to escape terrible conditions. In the meantime, the rest of the tribe were convinced that their gods had deserted them. Once the people had returned to their homeland, their conditions improved, but the dreaded skinwalkers, for whom they blamed for their years on the bleak reservation, were still among them. Accusations of witchcraft and the hunting of skinwalkers began. When someone found a collection of witch artifacts wrapped in a copy of the Treaty of 1868, the tribal members unleashed deadly consequences. The Navajo Witch Purge occurred in 1878, in which 40 Navajo suspected witches were killed in order to restore harmony and balance for the tribe. Today, most of the tales of sightings of these witches do not include death or injury, but rather are more trickster-like. Numerous people have told stories of swift animals running alongside their vehicles matching their speed. After a short period, however, they run off into the wilderness. Along the way, these animals sometimes turn into a man who sometimes bangs on the hood. Another story tells of a man who was making repairs on an old ranch home when he began to hear loud laughter coming from the nearby sheep pens. Thinking he was alone, he went to investigate and found all the sheep but one huddled in one corner of the pen. However, there was a lone ram separated from the group that was standing upright and laughing in a very human manner. After the man locks eyes with the ram, he sees that his eyes are not that of an animal, but very like a human's. The animal then casually walked away on all four legs. Some say they have seen them running throughout the night, sometimes turning into a fiery ball, leaving streaks of color behind them. Others have seen angry-looking humanoid figures looking down on them from the cliffs, mountains, and mesas. In the 1980s, one of the most notable events occurred when a family was driving through the Navajo Reservation. As they slowed to make a sharp curve, something jumped from the ditch. It was described as black, hairy, and wore a shirt and pants. A few days after this event, at their home of Flagstaff, Arizona, the family was awakened to the sounds of loud drumming and chanting. 
Outside their home were three dark forms of men outside their fence. However, these shadowy creatures were seemingly unable to climb the fence and soon left. These events have occurred in the Four Corners area of southwest Colorado, southeast Utah, northeast Arizona, and northwest New Mexico. In the 1990s, a ranch in northeast Utah, far away from the Navajo Reservation, became the partial focus of the Skinwalkers. Called the Sherman Ranch, the Skinwalker Ranch, and the UFO Ranch, this place has a history of UFOs, aliens, cattle mutilations, and crop circles. Located near the Ute Indian Reservation, these people have long thought that the Navajo put a curse on their tribe in retribution for so many perceived transgressions, and since then the Skinwalkers have plagued the Ute people. Witchcraft represents the antithesis of Navajo cultural values and is not tolerated. They work to avoid it, prevent it, and cure it in their daily behaviors. However, when it exists, their laws have always said that when a person becomes a witch, they have forfeited their humanity and their right to exist, so they should be killed. However, skinwalkers are notoriously hard to kill, and attempts are usually unsuccessful. Trying to kill one will often result in the witch seeking revenge. Successful killing generally requires the assistance of a powerful shaman who knows spells and rituals that can turn the skinwalker's evil back upon itself. Another alternative is to shoot the creature with bullets that have been dipped into white ash. However, this shot must hit the witch in the neck or the head. Traditionally, the Navajo will not speak with outsiders about these creatures for fear of retribution by the skinwalkers. For that matter, it is a taboo subject amongst the natives themselves. That concludes episode 15 of Curseland. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at Curseland. No dashes or underscores or spaces or anything. So you can message me on there if you'd prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later. <laughs>